I wonder if non-type designers would care about this. What if it was UX, the branding, the graphic designers, the letterers, would they really enjoy this? So I put it out there and normally we'd have like five to six people in the type scene normally. And then we did the first one with this Drupal meetup kind of announcement and it had like about 25, which for that scale is huge. And I was like, oh, we're on to something. I just, my, my intuition kicked in and I knew this is something, this is it. I knew it. And from that point on, I was like, this is a bigger deal than just type designers. Like it's part of a larger community. And that's where it all kind of in my weird messiness, my brain figured out how it all related. Hey everybody, welcome to Works in Process. This podcast is a series of conversations where I speak to designers, artists, writers, and more to discuss their creative methodologies. I'm your host, designer and educator, George Garastegui. Today I talk to Thomas Jockin, founder, partner, adjunct lecturer, and practicing type designer. We chatted a while ago about how he was inspired by the power of community to start a typographic meetup called Type Thursdays. We also discuss his partnership with a fellow educator to tackle the daunting task of reading proficiency. And yep, you probably guessed it, it has something to do with type. So let's not waste any time and get into this in-depth conversation. Hey Thomas, um, thanks for coming to the Communication Design Department at City Tech here in Brooklyn. We're recording in the Pearl Building, and I'm glad to have you here. How's your summer been? I mean, George, it's great to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> Summer's been busy. It's been really, really busy, but it's good. Yeah, it's really good. good. We'll, t- we'll get to talk about that in a little bit. Um, so I kind of start off with these quick, rapid icebreaker questions. Yeah. And are you ready? Let's go. Cool. So it's just a series of this or that. Coffee or tea? Coffee. We toast? Had a whole, we had a, off record, we had a whole conversation about coffee. Yeah, but you know, still it's my first one. So <laughs> toast or bagel? bagel making or presenting what if you're making a presentation it's ah, a tough one. Oh, i'm gonna say present new house grotesque or accidents grotesque accidents grotesque personal work or client work Shit. <laughs> the client work i actually do love the client work font or typeface. Oh, get out of here. Typeface. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> um, and now some word association. Just what is the first word you think of when you hear these words? Yeah. Creativity. Genius. Design. Letter forms. Art. Painting. Business. Money instantly came to my mind, yeah. Failure. Lessons. Clients. Wisdom. Mistakes. Gifts. Tools. Tools. I mean, I literally went to hammer. That's the first thing that went to my mind. <laughs> Skills. Something about sharpening a saw into my mind instantly. Opportunity. Seize. Future. Black? <laughs> Black. All right. Risk. Red. Now I'm going colors. <laughs> hey. Process. Everything. I thought that was going to be blue. Just keep yeah, the color. The color kept going. <laughs> Just kept on going. Sweet. Um, 
So as it's a podcast and my listeners probably don't know you, I want them to get an understanding of what your path to the industry was. Yeah. So let's find out more about your origin story, but you know, before we get into this thing called Type Thursdays. Totally. All right. Where did you grow up and did it impact you as a creative person? So I grew up on Long Island, New York, about 50 miles out east from here, New York City. <sighs> did it affect me? I don't think so, to be honest with you. Like, I don't think my location chain really affected my design. I think mo- much more my family did. I think that was a much more important force. How so? Well, on two grounds. One was uh, they really didn't get it. They came from a, a very middle class, lower middle class perspective. Like, they didn't go to college. They just didn't bachelor. Like, not even. They did a high school degrees, per se. My mother was an immigrant from Egypt. Uh, my father was an Irish-American, very traditional Irish-American family ba- tradition. They basically were very pragmatic people. Right. Uh, so they didn't really get the arts. They just didn't get it. And and it was interesting because they clearly just didn't understand my interest in it, but they never denied it. Like they never ever uh, second-guessed me or doubted what I wanted or my passion for it. They've always, in a weird way, supported it. They never stopped me. Mm-hmm. They always would cast doubts on it all the way through. Tom, you get a job, go get something practical, go be a doctor. Like, they don't take your picks. Uh, I think I think for them, they were like, as long as you go to college, we don't care. Okay. I think that was a little bit what their mindset was about this. Uh, but also just in general, because it was true even after I graduated from college, for example, I chose not to go work for someone, like a work a normal job. I was self-employed or self, self-directed my entire life professionally, the majority of it. And while they had massive doubts about it, because that's not the normal way you get taught when you're a middle-class boomer, baby boomer, go get a job, go get married, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. They didn't really understand it, but they did at least trust me to go through the process. And I very much appreciate that. I don't, I don't think I would ever gone, my creativity would have gone in the direction it did if I didn't have that kind of support. Cool. So going back a little bit, did you go to art school or were I you did. self-taught? I went to Parsons School of Design for my undergrad and then type at Cooper for the first year of the extended type program. So oh. it's called type at Cooper. It's, they have a one-year program and a, and a summer intensive uh, smaller one. The year long is much longer. Fun side note, I remember when I, I first heard about it, I was at TDC, Type Directors Club. It was back in 2010. And this is, and lo and behold, I ended up sitting next to Jessica Hish when she used to live in New York. She had accidentally spilt wine on herself and I had a napkin on me. So I was just sitting next to her and I remember seeing her from magazines, never met her in person. I was like, oh my God, Jessica Hish. Uh, so I gave her the napkin and we started talking and after the, con- in the conversation, she was like, oh, she found out about who I was and my background was. And she's like, oh, you should totally apply to two by Cooper. It's a great program. I think you should go for it. And nice. I was like, you know what? I looked it up and I applied. It was the deadline was that week, actually. So I had to like grab everything and like make the proposal over the weekend. And that was my education. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I know Type of Cooper seems really interesting. It was. It's, it's something that I, I don't think I'm ever going to be there, but I'd like to just kind of like sit and be in a fly on the wall and just like see what happens. Well, why do you say that? Why do you think why it gets, I just think that both sides that why do you think it's interesting and why? Oh, right. Because I think type is something that I tend to gravitate towards when I design. Yeah. But as far as creating letter forms and that self-expression of letters through your own creation is probably different than using existing ones to create a piece. Yeah. So I think it's a very different kind of skill set. And my my mind tends to be more wrapped around, let's say, me using existing versus me creating. From the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. 
So go on to that, right? That was your education. What was your first design job? And what do you think you learned the most from that? Well, my first, there are two major ones I'll talk about. I mean, one was a nonprofit. Basically, when I was, when I was in Parsons, I was like, one thing I, did, I had enough wisdom to know is like I was gunning ho for internships. So like after my, soft, my freshman year, I went right into internships. It was a nonprofit and it was a really great job. It was called the Active Citizen Project. It was about active democracy. And facilitators would go into public schools in, in urban centers around the, world, around the country. And they would call it to create basically open caucuses. So basically, like, you know, the caucuses work mm-hmm. uh, in, Demo- in primaries. It worked basically within, in, within a classroom. And they would cultivate a message uh, on needs in the community. And my job was to take those messages and produce posters of type and image, right? And then we would make them, we would make a print run of like 50 of them per class and then send it back to the schools and then pu- they publish it, they put it around the schools and local community. It was really great. I mean, it was a very, uh, very fun project, both to cultivate my typographic skills and design practice. And also, as you can tell, a kind of intu- an intuition or interest in this idea of communities uh, coming together and coming to understanding and design being a, an, an aspect of that in some way. So there's that major project. The other one was, uh, my apprenticeship under Joshua Darden. He's a typeface designer. He was my type one teacher at Parsons. And I went into it actually kind of very similar to what you said, like your engagement of type, very much a user of it, right? You use it for other purposes. Right. You're not actually in there using it, making it yourself. Uh, that very much, very much was my perspective up until that point. At the, I remember in the very first class where he gave a lecture, Josh, I remember at 19, just awestruck. Mm-hmm at just the way he spoke and the things he spoke about and just that degree of perception that seemed so alien. And I mind, I just, I made that call. It's almost like falling in love with someone in a weird way uh, where you're just like, when you first meet someone, you're like, this is the person. Right. So in this mode, it was like, I'm going to work for this. I'm, I want to have a mind like that. I'm going to work for this guy. And at the end, I remember at the end of the first semester, you know, type one was ending. I went to his, went to his desk at the end of the class and I was like, Josh, I'm letting you know I'm working for you. He's like, excuse me, yeah? I was like, yes, I am. And he's like, how so? I was like, well, here's what's happening. I will do an internship. I'll do it for credit. You don't have to pay me. I already have the approval from the school. I, I slide the paper onto his table with the signatures from the dean already, the chair already approved. I was like, you just have to sign. So you already had it figured out. I mean, I, if one... <laughs> If I have one good skill is figuring things out. No, no, but that's interesting. Instead of kind of like going to him and saying how are you going to do this? And then go, oh, let's work together and figure it out. You're oh, like, no, 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 I did it already. Just sign and we're good to go. Good rule of life. Make life, make it easy for people to say yes. By the way, on a fun side note, my first job at Poster Project, a nonprofit, similar scenario. I started working for them for like five bucks an hour, like dirt cheap. My mother was a li- was livid. <laughs> like actually my negotiation up was I was commuting because in the summer I would go back home with my parents, right? right? So I was like, guys, my, this money can't pay for my, tra- my tickets to get to the, tra- to the work and back. I need you guys to cover the travel. Yeah. So I got them to give me a travel stipend plus the five bucks an hour. This is back in, in 2004, five years, but it's still dirt cash. That's not, yeah, like, that's like nothing. That's nothing. Uh, Long story short, I lost one of my scholarships. I got me go to Parsons. So all of a sudden, I walk, I go, I go into my next year, ten thousand dollars in the hole. Like basically, the school's looking at me like, "You got where's that ten k?" And I'm looking at my parents. Hey guys, can you help me? And they're like, "Oh hell no!" <laughs> like you went to art school. <laughs> yeah, they're like like you. Hey, you you said you're gonna figure this out to pay for yourself, and you got the scholarships to pull it off the first year. But now it's on yourself. Now it's on you. We're not we're not signing nothing. 
And I looked in, and I was trying to, I was going to go on my own, but the interest rate was like 10%. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a monster. Uh, and these private, and the ones you get private are disastrous because they incur interest while you're in school. Right. Right. Versus the ones that hold for you while you're still in school. So right. this would be a hot mess. I went to that nonprofit and laid it out and said, but here's what you can do. There's external scholarships schools like, like recognize. So if you give me a external scholarship, performance grant, a performance scholarship and basically instead of pay, in lieu of paying me, I, I did all these machinations to make this happen. And they looked at in their finances like, yeah, we'll do it. So in a way I got a pay raise, but not really. And yeah. I mean, you're paying for school. Exactly. So it kind of all worked out. Yeah. I like that. This is the thing for anyone listening in terms of like, you better listen. The key to winning in life is you better be willing to. You got to make it easy for other people to say yes. Like people will help you if you make it easy for them to say yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Because it's it's hard for you to if you figured everything out and laid it all out and you just have to be like, let's just do this, right? They don't have to do any of the work. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that people stop doing it because they have to do the work. Exactly. And but more importantly too, not just but it's a very important distinction too. It's like you got to make sure that it's for their benefit too. Right. Right. In a sense, you can't just do all this and just hope it's going to work out. You got to see to understand what's their priorities. So like that nonprofit, I was like, listen, you could pay someone $15, $20 an hour. It's going to cost you actually more than what I'm asking you for. Right. So I help you that way. For Josh, to be honest, it was a little more just like the love. It just kind of propelled it forward, to be honest. But Josh probably, Josh actually was in the middle of a major project, major project. He needed, he needed assistance uh, for it. So I just lucked out that I got him on the right time where that made sense. Right. Timing sometimes is everything. It's everything. Yeah. yeah. So all of these little moments where you're talking about your internships and you're working with Josh and um, doing for the nonprofit, when did you consider yourself a designer? Oh, that point, the whole way through. I mean, I was getting paid doing design, so therefore design. <laughs> now, a type designer is a different animal. That one had massive self-doubt issues that did not go away for a very long time. That didn't happen until about 2000. And 14, 15, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Right. That was much later. Design in general, that was very natural, but because I was doing that for a very earlier time. Right. But design, type designer is a different, that's, that time. Much more longer. But time. interesting that you said, like, you considered yourself a designer when you were getting paid to be a designer. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Some people can be like, oh, I've been designing since I was a kid. You no. know, some people are like, oh, no, now it's a profession, it's my job. No, you have, when you have clients, you have that kind of, that's a major component. So now all the, the hesitation and, and, and the, the fear of type design and obviously going to type to Cooper. When did you create your first typeface? Was it at, was it at type of Cooper? That's complicated. So I def, I, part of the apprenticeship with Josh was learning type design and I assisted him on projects. So for example, a lot of his releases and around, actually, they actually, st- you start work in 2005, things were coming out in, 2000, in the 2010s that were still had me associated in some way. I was assisting on the projects. So I was assisting. There's usually a chain of contribution, right? Based mm-hmm. on your ex- capacity. Normally, the good rule of thumb is they send, when you were first learning, they send you in what's called extended character set work. So th- basically, the land scripts get supported in different languages. They host accent characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really basic grunt work. But still, actually, you have to learn a lot about visual, comp- visual proportion and alignments and all this other stuff. So there's actually quite a bit of learning in tr- the apprentices learn from that process. That's how I started. Uh, and then over time, you actually they, you accumulate more and more responsibilities as your capacity grows as an apprentice. Right. So I was contributing two typefaces for a long time. But yours. But my own. Yeah, your own. own. Uh, there were some really shit ones. <laughs> that was wow, which Josh and Josh. And you know what's funny? Josh would like look at it, just destroy it, and then pat me on the head. Like, good boy, good try, good try. Get back out there and keep trying again. Uh, 
you know, so, but actually let's put this way. If the definition I like for, I said for design in general, it was, it was clients. If I had like a parallel to producing either client typefaces or retail typefaces for the open market, that was 2013. Okay. So that's what you consider because one of those four. Because purpose. they went out on retail and I had clients. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now you're doing all this stuff, you know, right? You're, you're a designer because you have clients. You're, you have retail use and, and stuff for typefaces. And you also teach at Queens College for CUNY and at FIT mm-hmm. and also City College. Yep. Right. So a bunch of little, <laughs> bunch all, of, the all the places. The typical right? adjunct life. They exactly. They all over the place in the beginning. I want to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of this, this event-based thing called Type Thursdays. Yeah. What is that? And more importantly, why did you start, why did you start to create that? So this is, let's start with the beginnings, right? And the beginnings start with Joshua Darn again. I'm very indebted to that man. Like basically everything that came, that has come forth from me really came from him in a lot of ways. So for example, while I was an apprentice, Josh had a thing called First Thursday, where he would meet up with his crew, friends, once a month at, at a bar in a Lower East, I think Lower East Side usually, around there, Chinatown Lower East Side area, uh, like Houston Street. Maybe, so maybe a little Soho action when I think about it, uh, around those areas. But we would meet, they would meet up and I would come, I would tag along as the scrappy little intern, uh, apprentice intern. Uh, it would be Christian Schwartz, Chester Jenkins, Matteo Bologna, like, you know, basically just some nobodies, just the casuals, you know, just not a big deal. <laughs> For those who don't know, these are very, very well-known type designers or typographers in the New York scene. Yeah. And they would come in and they work in progress. Oh yeah. Also Jeremy Mickle, who, uh, uh I don't, that name, it doesn't uh, ring a bell. His foundry is, he's part of village. He's part of oh, that group. I know village though. Yeah. He does really, he does really great work. I remember him coming with his first typeface router and those meetings at first Thursday. And it was the format. You were at a bar, you would show your work in progress. The crew would come over. They would have a conversation with you about what you're trying to do. And then they would mark it up and say, okay, here's what's working. Here's what's not. And you would have debate. And then what would end up happening is there'd be debates. Some people would, what ends up happening is some claims are pretty obvious and other claims are really more based on if you want X, this is what you need to do. Well, what about this? And someone will kind of counter the other point. And then there'll be deliberations, basically, art, fun arguments over drinks and all the other stuff. Uh, it was like so much more fun than art school. The typical, you put shit on the wall and you grind it out for three, six hours, just grinding out the professor, trying to yank out the commentary. Someone says, it looks cool. Then you get smacked because it looks cool is not good enough of a claim. Uh, that kind of stuff. It was just so much superior. And he had drinks. It was fun. Right. You know? So that practice came from Josh. That was his training. Right. That was the tradition that Josh embedded into me while, while his apprentice. I had come back from Portland after type. Of, I used to graduate from Type of Cooper. I got my first client check. With that first check, Portland, Oregon. Boom. I just mo- immediately moved. It was instant. It was a first, it was a, I think, a 8K check. I was like, perfect. Boom. Going right now. I spent a year in Portland, had a great time, and I was like, it's time for me to come back. There were some health family issues I knew was coming up that required me to come back. Uh, plus, I just kind of a feeling like, you know what, I'm glad I did this, where I went, had no friends, had no relationships out there, and I made a whole bunch of friends and great relationships out there that was really rewarding. So I came back, and I was like, you know what, it's time for me to build something. Like, I, mean, I want to do it a first Thursday basically a variation of it. And I did type Thursday. <laughs> uh, and it followed the same format originally. At a bar, my crew that I knew. Uh, funny enough, actually, a lot of them became major designers at Commercial Type, for example. Uh, they were all basically alums of Type of Cooper of some kind. Right. 
or just friends of mine I've kept in touch with in the type scene in New York City. We would just come in and repeat the process. It was exactly the same tradition, just plied up. And, but what ended up happening was the major innovation was, I wonder if non-type designers would care about this. The non-type designers, what if it was UX, the branding, the graphic designers, the letterers, would they really enjoy this? So I put it out there, I put a call out. What I, what I did was, I know Dribble used to do Dribble meetups. They still do. So I decided I did a cross promotion with them. And normally we'd have like five to six people in the type scene normally. And then we did the first one with this Dribble meetup kind of announcement. And it had like 20, we had about 25, 20, yeah, about 25, which for that scale is huge. Like a big Skype. Yeah. It's like 500%. Yeah. Some whatever numbers, whatever, uh, <laughs> letters, whatever that is. Um, and I was like, Oh, we're on to something. I just, my, my intuition kicked in and I knew this is something, this is it. I knew it. Uh, and that's, how I was like, I'm going to seize this, seize the opportunity <laughs> And just run for it. And from that point on, I was like, this is a bigger deal than just type designers. Like, it's a part of a larger community. And that's where it all kind of, in my weird messiness of my brain, figured out how it all related. We went from that to then it kept going scaling up where the bar couldn't hold us. We literally were taking over the bar. It was causing chaos because we couldn't even hold the proper type, like the actual format, because... It would be insane. Be, we would take over the whole bar, and it was Williamsburg. So typically, people would be like, what's going on? Who is this whole crew? What's happening? We would say who we are. And we're like, oh, we're graphic designers. That's awesome. <laughs> so you just get more people. And I you- know. So you just yank them in. But the bar couldn't hold us anymore and did the format. So we went to a gallery space that used to be my co-working space to hold, hold us in New York. That couldn't hold us anymore. And then eventually at that point, uh, people started reaching out. San Francisco, then LA, then London, Seattle. Chicago, Philly, Bucharest, uh, Florence, Barcelona. Like it just started ex- expanding ridiculously. It will be f- actually this month, August is four years since it started. And it all started in a very simple, as a very seed of a tradition passed on to me and then moved on forward when I saw a greater opportunity. And so the greater opportunity is the ability to kind of like incorporate more types of creatives versus just type designers having a larger view of things right? right that that this diversity of peoples can be united over a common denominator in because the way. use of type touches so many places it's everything right you can start to have conversations of well this is good for a logo but maybe not good for text type or something like, you know like because you're having like different viewpoints of well somebody really just says well on a website it won't work because this is too big this is too small that's precisely the point right so you're kind of having this cross-pollination of views and go oh so if i wanted to do this for this maybe i need to rethink those processes because it's not going to work you know the same thing you mentioned with josh is that the fact that getting all these cross-pollinations of people is actually making your work better better or worse i mean you know if, they, if they're like it's not going to work so you know adjust it and do this because it's if the intention is for this and you're thinking it's for that you're not actually not designing it for the right purpose. And that's a big deal, actually. You know why? And just in terms of teaching the- thesis and beliefs, uh, I really do believe the proof. That's the, that's the word we use in type for the work in progress, right? It's really a conversation, right? It's kind of a weird way to put it. It's a conversation. Uh, but it really is. It's a, it's a thesis with a certain logic and a certain way of thinking that can be contradictory. It doesn't work. And part of the discussion, just like a dialectic in philosophy, is to force the contradiction, to find out where is it not working. And sometimes you can amend it. Other times you can't. It's gone down the path too far and it's untenable mm-hmm. for what you're trying to do, right? There's actually a way we can find reason, right, through discussion. 
which is really amazing because quite frankly, the, I mean, have you not heard this, that artists just makes nonsense. We're all just these weird uh, divinators. We just divinate from the gods, right. our muses and beautiful and make our art. While I don't disagree, there are certain intuitions and certain instincts that make our moves happen. It doesn't mean they don't have a reasoning behind it. It just may not be apparent to us. But it, through the discussion, a lot of times it gets revealed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you may make a decision that you're not even aware of. But through the discussion about the work in progress, it gets revealed. Right. Right. And I've seen that happen time and time again in the, in the interaction of Type Thursday. And especially the case, that's only, not only true when you have your own peers in your discipline, but when it's cross-pollinated with the other disciplines who may see it from different perspective. Right from the basically from the larger to the smaller, or from the smaller to the higher. Right, right. Both it goes both ways. I think its its potential is is extraordinary when you think of it that way. Yeah, I think the ability to have that pollination, like you said, and looking at it from multiple places, is where the person gets a chance to grow. You know, it's a big deal when they say, "I didn't even see that." Oh, you're probably you're probably like. Yes, this is what it's all about. Yeah, it's kind of like this flash. It just happens, like just this flash of like, whoa, I didn't even think of that. You're totally right. And sometimes it's in total agreement or there's like a, there's a clear next step that they, 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 they did not see that through the dialogue, they do see now. Or it's like kind of like, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's a huge problem. That puts this whole thing into crisis. <laughs> right, right. And I've seen that because I've come to a couple of type Thursdays and I've, you know, I think you only have like, I think three or four presentations. It's three of, presentations of four per right. month. Yeah. And, you know, what I really like about it and I enjoy is the fact that you're focusing on visual solutions and usually focusing on like finished typefaces. Sometimes you're just trying to work through ideas. Usually those people who are presenting are just like, I have all this stuff. I've seen a lot of sketches, a lot of, you know, raw, you know, artboards and, you know, whatever you create stuff. And looking at that nitty gritty versus trying to present this beautified thing, right? And what I notice is how receptive um, do you think creatives are in sharing their process and being vulnerable to criticism? That's a big deal, right? On both points, that's a huge point. I'm glad you brought that up because on two points. Part one is when the product is finished, the di- if there is dialogue, I've seen this happen when some people do, sh- I quote the show and tell presentation, doesn't work because there the discussion is more a defense. Like I have a position that's now mm-hmm. been crystallized, it's been solidified and I have to defend it against the claims it's not working. That's so not, a, like, that's so not useful <laughs> for everybody involved, in my opinion. Uh, it's actually a lost opportunity when that happens versus what you said, that uh, the willingness to be vulnerable, to put it out there when it's a work in progress because it's only in the movements of when it's malleable, when it's actually unresolved. There's tensions, contradictions, un- uncertainties, ambiguities. That's where actually where the dialogue can actually happen. Because there's actually room for movement of discussion. There's no, it's not this defense like I'm in this position against you versus we're, we're, we're with this together, trying mm-hmm. to find the solution together. It's a huge difference. It's a right. huge distinctional difference in that sense. But also, that's the whole point of it. I mean, this is all like the secret, secret sauce that makes Type Thursday happen. For some people, they're like, well, who cares? Like, what is this? It's just a type crit. This is just a normal art school crit, but it's not. It's very different because one, it's the idea that the body of knowledge is not necessarily in the presenter. It's in the audience in a lot of ways, right? We're actually entering, there's actually an idea like the presenter's coming in actually in a state of aporia, right? A kind of like, I don't know, or a kind of uncertainty about how to move forward, or kind of like, I see where this is going, but it's not complete yet. 
It's more the audience, the ones that contribute. I see what you're trying to do. And when you really know what's doing well, when they start stacking their understanding together, right? Their, their comments. It was like, what about this? And then someone stacks like, yeah, I totally agree. What about this too? It's very much in, in, in stand-up community, comedy, it's talked about as yes and. The improv. Like, the improv mode, right? It's a yes and-ness kind of versus a, a, a not a yes but or a no but. <laughs> it's a yes and. It's a kind of a, a firm affirmation and addition, mm-hmm. right? A kind of bringing together, adding in versus a kind of stripping down and breaking down mode of discourse. Both are useful, but there's a distinctional difference. The times that I've gone, and maybe it's just a community that you've built or just the kind of the way people see the need to help each other. I don't think I've seen anybody strip down somebody's work in a negative fashion. It's always been something like really trying to make sure they helped the creative push that forward, even though they knew maybe I'm going to tear this person's thing down, but it, the comments were always deemed in a way where it made the person go, that makes total sense. I have to rework it. This is a huge point, right? In, in terms of people make a very false economy between candor and comfort. You think you can't be candid with someone yet maintain the relationship. It's a huge problem a lot of people have. Yeah. They think they have to sugarcoat things and make things perfectly great. But actually, in a lot of ways, you're actually doing an injustice to them when you do that, right? Because you're actually, you meet, you know something's not working for what they, the key is you have to understand, you have to give them the space to be understood first. You have to seek to understand, then to be understood. And then it's a big reason why you're sensing that point is that we take all this energy to seek to understand first what is the project, what are the aims, and what are your issues with it, right? And then the community offers the insight. So even if it's in a mode of, of division, a mode of, of the removal or challenging, it's always for the sake of the good that project is aiming for. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, you're actually affirming them. Because you know, I'm pointing this out to you because I know we can solve, you can solve this problem. That's like actually in a bizarre way, actually the most respectful thing you can do to someone versus just saying, oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, the, oh, it's great, right? As educators, we know the, oh, it's great is, or, that's like the worst or, or feedback you can ever get. interesting. Oh, I hate that. I hate that because you know, I, I say, you say it's interesting. So clearly you have something in your mind. That's you want, a loaded word. You want to tell me what you mean by interested now? Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that's very true. It's it's where you want to say something, but you really just kind of put that jab out there, and you and you let it just sit. Yeah, just let it sit, and then you're like, "But that doesn't mean anything. Is that good? Is that bad?" Now I go home and like, "What does interesting it's mean?" Such shit. I hate that. I really do. I actually, it really boils my blood when I hear that. So, do you think that it's probably better for somebody who wants to present at Type Thursdays to be at that moment of? uncertainty yes <laughs> like i mean aesthetically like that is like the ones who have the courage to step in at that absolute moment of uncertainty get the best reward i think actually i think it's perfectly just because that's when the person the most courage should get the best reward in my opinion mm-hmm. have you seen anything i guess successful happen to that one person who comes in trying to justify what they've done with their final piece or it tends to always kind of go unfortunately the negative way it's not even negative it's just so not what it could be okay like i and god and i have to say god bless the dialogue leads because by the way like this is a whole system like it's not like me doing all this we got like a hundred people on our slack it's a huge process like, with team with with specific roles delegated to achieve certain outcomes the dialogue lead is a person responsible for making sure it's an effective event in terms of the dialogue. Literally, that's why they're dialogue leads. Uh, they have to do like that. When, they, when that project comes like that, they have to do the whole, they have to like worry, retrofit the project to be a conversation about a question. Like you have to present the work with a question. And those questions should become, what can I do with it? 
which are perfectly fine, right? But those are not the best purpose. Like that's not the best uh, possibility mm-hmm. of conversation. It's still good. It's not like it's bad. It's not like it's like people think it's a waste of time. No, but it's not the ultimate. It's not the ultimate what it could be. Exactly. Everyone senses it. Everyone senses like, yeah, that was good. That was cool, but that's fine, right? It's, it's kind of like neutral as, yeah. as, a, as an experience, you know? And it's, it's, you know, but at the same point, you, listen, people still contribute. And actually it's not like you still can't affirm a great project that's complete. And there's, a perfect, there's great value in that, by the way, right? But the question usually then moves on to like, what are you going to do next? What's the next right. step for this project? What are you going to do with it? It's almost like us as the audience really can't contribute, contribute to, to your project because it's already done. done. So if we're going to contribute, we may be upending your whole entire idea, which is not fun. Yeah. And so it doesn't feel like we're participating in yeah. the actual like production of your work and giving you feedback, which that lends itself to what the audience is really there for. They saw something they didn't see before. Right. right. And like you said, that moment we're like, oh, I didn't even notice that. Yep. Right. So I know, you know, you, you kind of segued into how the expansion of type there is, have gone into multiple cities. Yeah. Eight like, cities right now. Eight cities. Yeah. Sometimes doing a type there is all the same day in multiple cities. Yeah. We had, we've had events in three, like four cities at the same time. I think that's kind of really, really interesting that kind of just people latch on to this because obviously type is universal, but then start to bring it, to other places because of all this and you mentioned four years in the making in, in august since you've started this kind of official you know type thursdays has this platform given you a better way to be more c- critical about your own work yes because partly one i usually i do submit my work i do present a type thursday i eat my own dog food let's put it that way so there's that clearly uh that capacity I mean, first of all, also, I, the, the amount of people I have met, I would never have met if it wasn't for Type Thursday is astronomical. Like, it's huge. The amount of people I would have never met if it was not for Type Thursday. So there's like that aspect. That's huge, quite frankly. If you don't have good friends, what's the point of life? You know? True. And third is, I mean, partly because the nature of being forced to have to grow in terms of being a more de- cultivated leader, understanding communication, understanding leadership, seeking to understand others building structures of value. Those are all principles that through the activity of doing, I had to learn that were massively important to me to become a better, more effective designer in general. So this has been nothing but a blessing across the board in that sense. Right. Uh, and clearly the, I mean, the project I would say right now that I'm working on, that's like the most, the K demonstration of it is this massive project I'm working on with support of Google on uh, uh, reading proficiency in fonts. It's, ap- it's probably my dream project I've been like waiting my whole life to work on. And I think a lot of type, thir- it wasn't for type Thursday, I would never have gotten this opportunity. Well, that just goes into our segue, yes. right? <laughs> perfect, perfect, segue. smooth transition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in the, in the moments trying to set up this conversation, you, you mentioned to me this um, project you worked on, it's called LexN, yes. right? And... Um, you partnered on this with educational um, therapist Bonnie Shaver Troop. That's correct. Right. And so, what was the impetus for this? How did you get onto this project? And really, what is this reading proficiency concept with type design as you know its its kind of core? Totally. So I'll start with how Bonnie met me. Uh, good old internet. Straight. We love the internet. We love the internet. The internet's amazing. So she found my work more particularly uh, Type Thursday. And then saw interviews and podcasts. I was on the Design Recharge with Diane, uh, I think Gibbons, I believe. I, yes, Gibbons. <laughs> right, we're like, hmm. Yes. Yeah, I'm like, uh, um, it was a, she found that podcast, my discussions about that, uh, Type Thursday, my professional background. And 
she reached, she reached out to me. I had the blue from my dribble account, ironically. So this is all for a <laughs> circle. The dri- dribble helps us out a lot. Who knew? Uh, she messaged me through the dribble account. Uh, and we had a conversation and she presented this presentation. She's apparently for 20 years as an educational therapist has been working with students on helping them learning how to read. And she presented to me all this data and all these facts that blew my mind that I didn't know because I didn't come from an educational background. So, for example, she started with this big big stat on the front. Here, George, I'll have you play. Let's play a game. Oh, damn. What do you think is the percentage of the US, of U.S. students that are reading proficient? At their own level? Yeah, basically, yeah, at, your, at grade level. At reading. grade level, whatever they're... Yes. I'd say less than 50? It's 36%. Really less than 50. Yeah, it's bad. I was, I was hoping like 48. <laughs> I was really shocked. Because quite frankly, like, cause I, my reply immediately was, wait a minute, what about the literacy rates? They're 90, it's like 99%. You find out later that's a promise that's self-reported for the adults. The, measure they use, the definition is so broad. It can right. mean literally like you understanding a radio communication means you're literate. Very different. Yes. <laughs> Not what we think. When we think literacy, we don't mean that. We right. don't think that. Um, so basically, people can't read. And when you think about it in other aspects, this is, this is more just my own interest in sociology and just my political beliefs. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If we only know about 30% of the U.S. population go to, goes to college, most people don't go to college, even now. That was definitely the case generations ago. Even right. now, when we think there's a huge push in college, most don't make it. Most don't go to college. Vast, vast majority don't. It, you can look at it as two ways. One, civilization is amazing <laughs> because we've done so much with such apparently such a limited output of the, of the population actually achieving high outcomes. Or what the hell will we be if we had more people achieving their possibilities? I could see this go one or two routes. Because uh, human civilization is amazing, quite frankly. The internet, all this other stuff. And, and this is very important. Written communication is a huge aspect of it people think because youtube and audiobooks and and podcasts thinks because of this technologies we don't need reading anymore that's not true majority of human information is recorded in text right i don't want to tell you that's the case in the matter uh when you don't when you can't read you're blocked from literally civilization how can you be a doctor how can you be a lawyer how could you be a high level professional in management if you can't read it's not possible not possible so communication and the capacity to read particularly is not just a like nice to have. It's actually a moral imperative. If we want people to be good in the world, this is a huge issue. Especially for designers, especially in the type world, especially, right? If there's any, if we can say there's any moral claim of what's the good for us, it's people ha- being able to read. Right. I mean, for God's sakes. If, if I mean, type the, is our language. It is. And that's what type is meant to do. It's our function. So Bonnie, for 20 years, on her own, in the education world, they've known about this problem of reading proficiency. It's just a huge issue. This has been going on. And this is not just the United States. Europe has this issue. The Middle East has this issue. Asian scripts has this issue. CJK script systems. Most of the population can't read properly. It's a com- It's a- across the board. So we're like, what is this? So people think it's like, it's nut- maybe nutrition. It's the education interventions. It's the method of teaching. It's the content. It's too complex for the student. They think it's all these other factors. And there have been all these attempts. Like Bill, Bill and Gates Melinda Foundation, for example, put, I believe, millions of dollars towards initiatives 
on a teacher interventions mm-hmm. didn't work. They, they did a, a longitudinal study on it, the Bill and Gates, the Bill and Gates Foundation, no results, indifferent. So they're like, everyone's like, what is this? How can we help these people to read? Bonnie was like, what if it's the font? And people were like, no, nonsense. You think something ridiculous, some complete arbitrary thing like the font is going to affect the reading effect, the performance of the reading? She was laughed out loud. She was completely thought ridiculous for that point of view for 20 years for that point. And she would do her work at the therapist and she, on her own, with no background in type training, would say, I think it is that. She just had intuition about that point Mm -hmm. and started investigating what would it be? Testing different fonts, going to Microsoft Word, messing around with stuff to try to figure out what it is. And eventually she created what she she patented as the Shaper True formulation. So this is what she presented to me. And when I heard her thesis on it, as a type designer, all my experience, about 10 years now doing this. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> yes, wow. The, the realization of 10 years? Yeah, it's a little rough. Well, <laughs> uh, getting old. Okay. I was like, oh my God, it's true. It works. It, because I was like, how did this complete outsider figure out this? It was a principle that made perfect sense that a professional type designer. I'm like, this is legit. This is not some bullshit. This is the real deal. This mm-hmm. is not crazy talk. This is her thesis. Her thesis is that the reader basically is they're learning how to read. It's kind of like using an analogy. I'll use two analogies. One, that reading is a learned skill. It's not a, it's not a naturally occurring phenomenon. Like mm-hmm. learning language. Like you speaking a language is naturally a habit, right? When children are born, they'll start learning speaking all the phonemes, all the all the sounds a mouth can make. They'll speak it out. But over time, through your culture and your 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 civil you're being civilized in your culture socialized, you'll start dropping the vocal, the, the phonemes you can't speak anymore that are right. not relevant to your culture, and you'll focus on the phonemes that are relevant to your culture. So, But, if, but the point is, at first, you have universal access to language. Reading does not work that way. You have to learn how to read. It's a learned skill. It's not a naturally born thing. So if that's the case, what other thing do we learn that's not naturally born? Riding a bike. I'll use that analogy. So when you first learn how to ride a bike, you're not just going to throw you on the bike on one of those fixies. And just say, good luck, have fun. And then when you fall <laughs> off the bike, it was like, you're clearly incompetent. You can't do this. You have a disability. <laughs> uh, it's like, no, we got training wheels. We take it easy on them. We put some training wheels on them and we let them get used to it because if they need some help because they try and their mind is trying to understand what's happening. It's too much of a mental load. They have to slow the F down and figure out what's happening. And then once they get used to it, then you take the training wheels off and then they can ride the bike. They learn the skill. And then from there, it comes natural. And then you can get them to do cool tricks with the bike and go faster with it and cut turns quick, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is that that's the point about learning, t- learning how to read is a learned skill. Next one was, I think a lot of people would think, well, clearly then that's an issue of just finding the right font, right? Just like we need to find the one font that's going to solve the problem. That we get this one setting in the font, everyone will learn how to read perfectly. But that's not true. It doesn't work that way. Because readers are diverse and their reading process varies person to person. There is no one font setting in a way that will solve for everybody. But instead, there's actually a principle that does apply to everybody, but, the de- but it requires a variation of, in- of, degree of a-, a degree of intervention, like eyeglasses. So mm-hmm. we're both nearsighted, we're both wearing glasses, but we're not having the same prescription. 
if I gave you my prescription, I get yours. That's not going to make any sense. Probably not. No, you won't, re- won't be able to see. Uh, versus someone who's perfectly 2020, right? They can see perfectly fine without glasses. So the degree of intervention varies by person to person. Some people need a lot of intervention and some people don't. So we, not only, so we went from the bike example just saying we need intervention to then saying like eyeglasses, we need different degrees of intervention. Right. What the shape retreat formulation does is it applies increasing intensity of expansion in the inner counter and the spacing between the forms. So think of it as tracking and expansion, you know, letter forms that are wider. Right. They're happening in, in conjunction with each other in a certain proportion. And they start relatively minor in intervention and they get really extreme at the most extreme forms of it. So a wider face sometimes and also wider spacing between letter forms. They're, jo- they're joined together, the spacing right. and the wideness. Instead of just being, it's just wide with normal spacing. Exactly. It's the spacing and the letter form width at the same time are both being you know expanded or contracted depending on what you need, the user needs. Now, by the way, I want to point out, uh, we do do this, we know this intuitively in, type, in typography. For example, if you said type small, you do know you've been you've been taught sometimes track it out a little bit. Type the small, track it out a little bit. It's intuition to know that in a smaller size is you're gonna the reader needs a little more white space to grab what's going on. It means that this principle of white space being the major component of perception is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And there are some thoughts, some schools of thought in psychology to talk about this. It relates to visual masking and crowding. It's the idea when the human eye is perceiving, gaining the information from the marks to decode, that if the letter forms are too close the eye might cross wire or mess up. It may skip a letter or just omit it completely. And that led to some of the difficulties that results in reading. So by, by this thesis of hyperexpansion, uh, both of, tr- of spacing and letter form, we can basically find the optimal fit for the user that gets them their best result. And this can be measured by a fluency test. It's a very traditional measurement tool used in education. Mm-hmm. It's uh, measured in words correct per minute. So you'll be given a text and you're asked to read it out loud, and an observer is observing you read it out loud, and they'll count how how long it took you said the how long it took you to said the passage, how many errors you made along the way, stutters, stammers, missed words, things like that, and we calculate your words correct per minute, and within a certain grade level, you're expected to be at a certain output, mm-hmm. right? As an example, uh, but it also can be localized to you personally, right? In terms of your performance with and that's the big thing too is that. In the psychology and education fields, they're like, you think the font's going to change the fluency score? The answer is yes. And we did a study that demonstrated the case. We had a subject, a group of 20, go through this series, Times New Roman as a control, and the Lexan series as the, as the variables. And we had them read different texts to make sure that the, because by the way, read text, you keep reading text, your fluency goes up. Right. So you can't read the same text. Over no, and over no, it'd again. be easy. Yeah, exactly. So I know the eye test. We control, <laughs> yes, we control those kind of uh, factors. Uh, we showed that Users had different fluency results based on the based on which setting the font, and some users did best with some fonts and did best with others. Right? It had a basically a normal distribution. Mm-hmm. Some people needed one setting. Some two people needed Times New Roman. That was their best option, which is fine. Two people needed the first setting. One person needed the second setting. Nine uh, nine people needed the third setting, and five people needed the fourth setting. For example, so as you can tell, it was this kind of distribution of people needed different settings, right, to find their best fit. So we show that fonts do affect fluency. The basically Shaper True formulation is what it is the is can allow for finding this optimal fit for the user, mm-hmm. which verifies our traditional training type design about spacing being the the most important factor of making a font basically effective for reading purposes. 
So let me ask you one question, right? So you're, you're, you're having control beings at times, right? New Romans, yes. right? Which is a serif typeface. Yep. But Lex End is a sans, sans serif. serif. Yeah. Is that adding, like, are you doing apples to apples because one has, well, here's you know, a, serifs yeah. to allow the eye to be guided versus one has yeah. sans? Is that a... What's actually really devastating about this, this presentation is shows that it wipes out that entire thesis. Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, Times New Roman actually has two major properties. It's not the serifs. It's its contrast. Mm-hmm. So the very fact that two people actually did better with, with Lexin, the first setting, which is a rather narrow sans serif form, mm-hmm. better than Times New Roman, and the, actually the majority of the population, right, of the 2017 did better with Lexan. Shows us that Times New Roman this doesn't work. I, maybe I'll be generous by commenting that I think it's the contrast that's actually the problem, because Times New Roman is actually very high contrast as a form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering if, if, you know, serif to serif, sans to sans would be a truer thing or because times is, is more ubiquitous with everything that we use. It's kind of like, you know, it's on all the software we use. I mean, that's the, thesis, that's the thesis, but quite frankly, if you want to be really robust, you would do this again with a low contrast serif, uh, right, with Lexan. And you, mm-hmm. do, you could be really more systematic about it if you wanted to. But the, the basic point is if times Roman was totally supposedly superior than mm-hmm. a sans serif, then it would have it would have done better out anyway, but it right. didn't. Right. So figuring out as a designer the spacing of letter forms and the spacing in between letters does aid into the way people read. Yes. Right. Which we know as a designer, like, hey, it needs more space. It needs to have air, and all these things that we say that, yes. like you mentioned, are intuition. Now we have some backup to kind of say, well, it actually technically is because people get to see the letter forms maybe more individually. Let's clarify. Oh, I want to clarify that very important point you just made there. So. Reading proficiency has three major components to it. Decoding, fluency, and comprehension. What you just said right now about finding individual letters, that's decoding, right? So that's being isolated individual letters, right? right, Very quickly. Fluency is to be able to be able to grab the words, right? Without effort. So it's like the analogy of riding a bike. It's not like struggling in riding the bike. It should not take you any mental cognition to, or effort to read. Like you shouldn't be able to, you should not be reading out loud going, D- d- dog gave to like see that's that effortness happening that's what fluency is checking for okay just to clarify those two are prerequisites to get comprehension you're not getting comprehend it's like riding a bike how can you pay attention to riding the bike like doing something toward the like getting to the destination of the bike if you're struggling how to balance yourself on the bike right it doesn't work uh just want to clarify that point. Oh, no, definitely. And I yeah. think that, you know, having those three different things, the decoding, you know, the clarity and... Let me put it this way. On the study, the average improvement with the Lexan series versus Times New Roman was 20% improvement. Instantaneously. No capital investments. You know how much money got put, gets put into education to mm-hmm. help people how to read? Millions, if not billions of dollars. Right. But this, this font change can get you 20% improvement on average. Automatically. Automatically. And... Even within, and by the way, we should do cost benefit analysis. So that's the average, right? On the on the cost side, wait, what any harm this this change did? The ones that did best with Times New Roman, the most harm was a four percent decrease, very relatively minor. You switch to Times New Roman, they were perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. The maximum benefit was a forty seven percent improvement. So you went from, I believe, I remember from the stat from the from the study, I think a person went from like ninety. Words correct per minute to about a hundred and twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Like if that's that's an extra thirty words almost. Yeah, it's a big yeah. deal. So where do we see this 
like this technology being used? How are we going to start translating this, oh, this so theory, oh, this so theory into a thing? No, it's a, it's a big deal because the fact that it's so cost efficient means it's not just theory. It's not just some kind of pie in the sky scientific point. Like the, the implications for this thing are huge. Because first of all, one, first of all, one, it points out, this is like, I think the justification to get uh, flexible typography, variable font technology into the education textbook technology industries because now we actually have demonstration of a measurement that shows quantifiable improvement towards metrics that are mandated by law that for example the education the equal opportunity the idea i forgot what that stands for it's the it's a law passed in the 1960s that mandated equal access to educational resources this allows professional ed for example where school districts are required to make sure give accommodations to students who have needs Mm -hmm. right uh if we can, by showing we have a measurement tool and a te- an easily implemented technology for improving the reading proficiency of students, this could be mandated in what's called an IEP, Individual Education Plan, in the con- which is a legally binding contract the district has to draft for the individual student. This can be mandated to have this font setting for them, to a personalized usage for them. Mm-hmm. And we can get and demonstrate improvements up, 20, up from 20% on average to, up to higher numbers from there. So we're actually having direct impact that can be applied to the law and policy making right off the bat on that side. And bring in the equation idea of textbook, the, the design of textbooks and variable font technology. Because by the way, we're showing that design is not a one size fit all, which leads right. to questions of accessibility, which has been a big push in the web, the UX, UI, web development back industries, right? They're being pushing on accessibility. This is a huge aspect of it. It's showing that this is true all the way down to the type. Right. Because if you want optimal fit to the user, you have to, it has to be on, a, on an individual conditional case. Yeah, it's like typographic equity. In a way, yes. But the problem is, as we know as designers, is that when you change one variable, it has all these consequences. So it means that we're actually going to have to create almost propositional logics where we say when we switch the font to this, we have to change the spacing to these relationships and this causes all these other variables have to play together. Mm-hmm. So instead of, for example, the viewport, like we knew, you know, you do... Uh, like web design. Responsive web design. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing just the viewport, like, oh, it's a big screen. It's a small screen. You change the design for that. No. Instead of that, it's to the user. It's the power of that is astronomical because it could get such a degree of precision that it wouldn't be possible otherwise. Yeah. It seems like the the opportunity of what this can start to become with, like you said, that, that was it educational plan where the individual student or just reader yeah. now has something tailored towards them, right? So they have a better chance of optimal reading and fluency and understanding because it's actually geared towards them. And then we're going to increase all of these you know, factors of them being able to read better, be more fluent, comprehend more information. You know, hopefully that, that, that what is it, 38% of... of you know, people who can read fluently, yeah, right, goes, like you said, it probably goes up to 58, maybe even just, you know, in that 20%, you maybe know. Maybe even thing. higher. Yeah, maybe even higher, but just on a, you know, initial case basis. Yeah, but I mean, this is really important because, by the way, the implications of this are huge in the sense that a lot of times you're reading proficiency, wherever you are, is a child, about third grade is where you're going to be the rest of your life because, it, because education system is designed to presume you're learning how to read up to third grade. And after that, they're like, good luck. We hmm. did our job. We trained you how to read. If you didn't learn how to read, 
sucks for you because you couldn't play because I found this out from Bonnie. This, the, the districts are only allowed to hold you back two grade level, two times in a grade. So, for example, you're not off the capacity to produce results, like get up to level at a kindergarten or first grade or second or third. They can hold you back twice. That's it. They have to move you up after that. They're required. So it's not like they're basically saying like, oh, they put their hands in the air and say, good right. luck. We did our, we tried our best. You didn't make it. And I should share a video with you about uh, illiteracy in adults or reading, mm-hmm. lack of reading proficiency in adults. There's a video of a woman learning how to read. She starts crying because she's, oh my God, I have all those opportunities. I can actually be a job. I could be a boss. I can actually be responsible for, she's a janitor at a school that she couldn't even do because she couldn't read. Mm-hmm. Because you take it for granted, like you're learning how to read chemicals on the, the, the read of the labels on chemicals and know which ones are in dangerous ones to mix together or not. You gotta know how to read, right? Like so, even like we think it's we take it so for granted that we can read. It's the first skill for everything else is possible. That's a low bar, let alone the ones that become lawyers, doctors, politicians, educators, all that because they learn how to read. Like this has huge implications if if it could be if it could be delivered inexpensively, effectively, and quite frankly to bend the knee of decision makers because for a long time designers have been basically quite frankly flatterers right. or really at the whim of decision makers to make the call that they think design is important. No, mm-hmm. this is the opposite. If we can show that it's something that by law they must accommodate to. I mean, the potential for all that, I definitely can see that just being exponential. It's all about, like I said, the title back at the beginning. It's all about making it easy to say yes. Yeah. I mean, I think we can go on and on because I think it's, it's, when you get down to it, it's such a systemic issue that's something that you're realizing could be addressed a lot easier than we thought it was. By one simple fundamental thing. You're right. Right. That's the thing. A lot of people think change happens in these big things, which is true. But sometimes it's a small things, a very, very small fundamental thing that's blocking the way. Right. You know, she was getting laughed out of the idea that I to, that somebody goes, maybe it's the font, you know? And I was like, no, it, it can't be something that basic. You know, to understand why, you know, different typefaces and the families of typefaces go from wide to condensed because every single one has different meanings, different feelings, different senses, different emotions. Why wouldn't that be the same thing with being able to comprehend and understand those? That's a whole separate discussion. Right. That's what I mean. That's the thing. Design actually has two parts, right? There's a function side, right? And then there's an affective side. Design has powers on people, Right. And that's what you're pointing out. It's the affective quality of design to elicit emotion in people. But I agree. I absolutely agree that that's a huge issue. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that emotional qualities that design brings up don't play factors, right? It's probably one of the reasons why what, when they can't understand what we do, they just laugh it off. Yeah. Right. I and now it. you're realizing, you know, not you, because obviously you understood the importance of it, but the majority of people realizing that something as what we call, you know, minute is changing the whole game. Yep. Do you have any next steps for Lexend? So much. <laughs> so one aspect is uh, actually testing the thesis for other script systems. So Bonnie's all her, her empirical practice and work was with Latin systems, English and Spanish, for example. Uh, but not. But now the next step is, so while I was working on the on Lexend series, I'm going to get into a variable font, my old mentor, Nadine Shaheen, uh, of Monotype formerly, I knew she went for, a, she did a PhD. And I was like, didn't she do a legibility study in Arabic? And didn't it have things kind of related to what I'm doing here? 
I just had an intuition about it. I looked up, I found a dissertation, I read it, all 200 pages of that thing. Um, and I found out it actually correlated a lot to what Bonnie was thinking uh, independently, basically from each other. I spoke with Nadine. I pitched it to her. And I was like, let's do Lexan for Arabic. And she was like, let's do it. Uh, I got Google, Google supported, is supporting us on that now. And we're now commencing the Arabic edition of Lexan. So we're going to produce the fonts, the variable font in the same mode, and then test it empirically to verify that this works. And this is a huge deal because there are, this will be groundbreaking research on this question. Because if we can prove we have, we have, a, we have, a strong enough hypothesis to justify the move. Right. But to actually prove it empirically that this thesis applies to other script systems besides Latin, it means we're grabbing at a principle that's universal. Right. Beyond culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a huge deal. It's literally like new bodies of knowledge. Right. And, and I, I think, think that's, where, so that's cool. where like the, the idea of the potential, right? Because it's just like these things that are, they're truths. Yeah. Right? If, if we, can, we can justify or not justify, but realize that spacing in this regardless of the letter form or the character set is what affects the way we get to read and comprehend information yeah and we realize that it's like you said not just latin character sets it's all different sets i mean that opens up a whole new you know avenue for exploration Mm -hmm. this is insane you know i think that's when there's so many things that are trying to like pull things apart you know, we're realizing that something that's always been there can kind of start to unify Bring it all everything. together. Right. And that's the thing is, well, first of all, one, I love that speech. It was great. <laughs> that was excellent. Um, there's a couple of points to it. I mean, first of all, one, it's, it's both interesting enough a way we've affirmed the tradition, but we've also challenged the tradition at exactly the same time. We've affirmed it because the universal principle has been fo- shown, show, proven to be true. It's been demonstrated to be true. Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously everyone, everyone involved in the Lexan Arabic project believes that there's enough justification to, to justify the risk of taking, taking the stab at it that will be proven, verified in our thesis about this. Mm-hmm. We may, by the way, fun part of science, we might be wrong. Right. Like we're actually doing a proper study, right, with subjects in Lebanon, native speakers. We could be proven wrong. And then whoops. <laughs> right. But with, all, with everything that seems to be moving the way it is, it seems like we are onto something very serious here. Uh, there's a kind of uniting that's occurring, and I agree with that. And that part of the tradition has been honored, and I love that. I love tradition because of that. It actually holds truths that are, hold, that are, or, that are the case, even if we don't actually know it. We, don't, right. we can't prove it yet. It's still true. But the other side is we have, the tradition has been challenged, and it's very much the idea that there's one solution. That is the, so in a way, our reasoning is no longer definitional. It's analogical in nature. It's a kind of diversity unified by some universal principle. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's the idea that there is no one master perfection type, but instead there's a principle that it's applied in a diversity of, of applications to achieve the good end. That's a radical changing of teaching and, and training, quite right. frankly. I, I agree with that. I think the, the idea of the principle of some of these truths of how we need to see or how we need to approach or how people comprehend they're going to be there. But now that we have different types of viewers, different types of users, and we have to address their needs, the principle stays the same. But how do we, for you and me as educators, how do we teach 18, 20, 25 students a semester? Okay, we have to get to this point, but we don't have to do it the same way. Yeah. 
you know, there's a great, there's a great way to like phrase this. It's from the book End of Average. So, it's, you know, if you've heard like, you know, uh, equality opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Equality of outcome. The author makes a claim for a third, a third move, right? But not that are, that are both, that are kind of union of those two. Equality of fit. Mm. So in the sense that we won't, basically our responsibility as society is to create the environment that's the optimal fit for the person to flourish, right? So it's not about making sure everyone hits the same outcome, right? Because we can't guarantee that. Life is life. Mm-hmm. We can't guarantee that. But we also want to make sure everyone has equal access. But some people have just, quite frankly, better off than others. Some people, the, you just you kind of open the gates. It's a, you know that that um, it's a great illustration. Like there's like a people trying to look at a baseball game, mm-hmm. right, over a fence. Yeah. And some people are taller, so they could just stand and there you go. And they got the short the person that's short can't see it. They need some boxes to get them up. That's usually been an argument for a reason for why we need for equality of outcome. Yeah, that's the equity model. But it's no way of framing that in the sense that it's not really about necessarily because as you know, it's not it's not the perfect picture. It's really more about seeing those boxes being added in as finding optimal finding equality of fit. Mm-hmm. Everyone is fit for the environment given to them, right? So that basically we can reveal what their capacities actually are in their natural character. Yeah, and I think that's what we're we're trying to ad- uh, adjust to. And I think as you know, I would say we're younger educators who probably are more adaptable when we see that things need to be adjusted. And I think that that's some of the moments that we need to focus on when we're dealing with optimal fit, not to just approach our educational you know, practice as like a one size fits all. With all of this stuff and fit and all of that, what advice would you give yourself or how would you do things differently considering the stuff that you know now? Nothing. Really nothing. I think maybe at most, do it sooner. <laughs> I mean, at the most, but then, but then it's difficult because I know why I didn't do the things I did at the time. Uh, I wasn't I, ready yet. Yeah. You know, uh, to be honest, and that's actually, I think honestly, luckily, I hope, I, I hope when I'm old, like older, <laughs> that I get to be, I, I, I will still be able to truthfully answer that question that way. Mm-hmm. Meaning I don't have any regrets. I really yeah. don't. I think it was all worth it for everything. All the good, all the bad, mm-hmm. all the hardships, all the failures. It was right. all worth it. Yeah. I really, I, I kind of feel the same way. Not even advice for me, like do things differently, but more, it's actually more for myself, actually. If I look back on this recording 20 years from now, what I want to remind myself when I get older, I guess, maybe I'm going to phrase your question that way. There you go. No, I really, no, it's true. Because actually, honestly, my, my proudest moments of self-esteem was when I realized, even when I didn't really know when I was younger, I knew the truth. I knew I had principles and things that really mattered to me, and I honored them. I think that's a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And that's really, that's why I want to never forget that. Okay. In the sense of, that seems very vague. So let me clarify uh, that people matter. People are worth it. That, that, that the principle of seeking to understand is well as worth everything. It was worth, I'm getting all upset at everything. <laughs> no, I mean, I know where you're going, you know, and, and to go through, whatever you went through to get here yeah. is what matters is it, 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 you know, the people you meet, the, the, the struggles you go through, the reasons you did it, the late nights or the sleepness or whatever you did all gets you here. Right. Well, no, let me clarify. Let me be stronger on that because for a long time, 
And forget even Type Thursday. That's already had its own issues with that. But even in my training as a type designer, it's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. a lot of things unknown, huge unknownness. I talk to students now, massive unknownness. I see, I, I see a mirror back to me of that unknownness. Like you just feel like, you just feel like there's absolutely nothing. Uh, you're like, oh, I could do all of this. I could do that. They're just aimlessness. That bizarrely, that there was something, a devotion, that something I was devoted to something. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I didn't even understand the whole truth of the matter, that no matter, no matter how much doubt kicked in, no matter how much it seemed like it was a waste of time, it wasn't worth it, it was a fault, I wasn't good enough, no matter what, no matter, fa- no matter any time there was a hard, there was a difficulty, that I stuck with it, that that kind of devotion, right, uh, not only to my practice, my craft, but the Type Thursday, the people in Type Thursday, the hardships that came in with it, you know, I own, and this is my own personal life, and students are like professionally, and it's all this thing like students too. You know, when students start out really difficult and just not, they don't get it, and it's like this really frustration, and then you you just devote to them that no, you're worth it, mm-hmm. that this is worth it, it's worth sticking in, that I'm gonna try this method and this method and this method, and and sometimes if, even with that you still fail, but sometimes the ones that click, it just all boof, it just this opening occurs totally worth it. Same thing goes for my professional career. When it all clicked, and I don't really think, to be honest with you, I don't think it really clicked until this year, to be honest with you, that those almost 10, those 10 years of devotion where it didn't seem like it was worth it, totally clicked. Friends that you wanted that had difficulties with, right, where they seemed like there was hardships or they seemed like a friendship was going to fall apart, that no, your devotion to it, that it was worth to keep it, that the friendship, the thing that people, the principles and the things that matter to you are worth keeping to, or sticking to it, mm-hmm. Those are the gifts. That's the thing. Those are the moments in reflection that cause real joy in life. Right. Right. Uh, and when I reflect on my, young, my younger years and I see that I was there and I work and I see the, the repercussions of that and what I see now with Lexan and Type Thursday. And I want to make sure that hopefully that I, I keep doing that because mm-hmm. I think that's the only way that actually life actually has any hope of being really good. Right. I mean, on. Yeah, I think what you've been doing your whole life is just believing in you. No, it's not about me. No way. No. No? No. Some things are more important than yourself. Principles matter more. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you really touched on it a little bit when you kind of going through with your students um, and the dedication and devotion. What things do you notice are those are their biggest strengths or biggest weaknesses? I mean, they know how to Google real well. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I mean, the, like meaning, like they know how to find solutions to problems by via the Google, mm-hmm. right? In that sense. Uh, so if it's like technical problems, most of them are pretty good at f- figuring it out, mm-hmm. right? Oh, they just need a little tap from me. Mm-hmm. They'll say, "Just Google it, boom," and then they get it, right? Uh, in terms of, well, in terms of, okay, I can list out, I think one, they're much more aware of the world, much bigger sense of scale than I ever did when I was growing, and I was going to school. I think in terms of their hardships, one is, well, principles of value, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And values is really mysterious force that seems to make the world actually work. You know, it's because money makes the world go around. So there is a problem. Economics, they use the values equivalent to money. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Money is just an indicator. It's a sign of it. 
right? It's just one representation of it. It's not exactly what value is, totally. That, that never gets taught. I mean, that's I don't see students get taught that at all. I mean, part of, part of my kind of like special thing I teach students, the ones I see are willing or capable of learning it, or principles of value. Uh, that's huge. Like that's honestly what's going to make make or break their actual success. It's the question of value, what it is, how to align it, and actually a lot of times the big principle, the big, the big thing is that even though value exists universally, how it applies particularly is particular. It's mm-hmm. subjective. Right. So this is why, for example, when I hear arguments, oh, I spent 20 hours on this. But if I reply back, but your client doesn't give a shit. If it didn't solve the problem the client wanted, doesn't care. Right. It actually, I frankly, you think, oh, because you work 20 hours, you should get paid. In a way, you're right, but another way, not really. Because the client, from the client's perspective, subjectively, it's like, well, shit. Did all this work got made and I had to pay them, but didn't solve my problem. Right. So I paid you for nothing. Yeah, exactly. From yeah. their perspective. Right. Exactly. From their perspective. Your perspective is I put in the time. Right. But you're like, okay, that means you could have just been sitting there punching a clock versus actually trying to solve the problem. The problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, value is a tough one. Yeah. I mean, there's two huge issues with that. That's a huge point. Like, first of all, one, actually, I could share a story recently with a student. We got in a massive debate because he was like, so I made a comment about, hey, listen, I have a certain policy for the sake of students achieving their desired end for the course. And his retort was, well, clearly you should do, you should do it this way with me because the desired end is, my, is me getting an A. And I was like, nope. I was like, you're wrong. I'm going to let you know you're wrong big time. Uh, because you think the grade is a sign for the goal, for the good. It's not the good itself. No. It's just like the money question when we say yeah. about the job, right? The money is just a symbol. It's yeah. just a representation. It's not the actual good itself. No. The money is, money is equivalent of just time at a place. That's one way of taking it. Or the right? value exchange. Right. Occurred. But it's not the how well... Like, how good of a job did you do, right? You don't get, like, if you have a full-time job, you don't get paid more money to do a better job. You just still get paid your job. You, you get paid your salary, yeah. right? So the idea is, you know, the, I hate, like you do, when somebody goes, how do I get an A? Because then That's you're- the wrong you're, Yeah, because your attitude towards it is you're only going to do just enough that you think will get you this grade. It's- and, and, and for our perspective, I believe, like, if this person who's maybe not as well a designer, but is busting their butts to try to get there, that could be an A because I can see the potential and where they're going versus somebody who just dials it in and does really good work and just does enough to satisfy the goal, which is to get an A, I will probably give them a B. Yeah. Because it's... Because... If it was so easy, you should have did so much more because everything else came easy to you, right? So you didn't actually learn anything. You were just there producing. I mean, I'm here to get you to good work, but part of school is to understand how to get there. It's all about engagement. And that's the thing. Like, I think partly back to the original question about what are students lacking when they go out on the market? Uh, in some ways, they are massively engaged and they have to be because they got debt. <laughs> uh, it's a powerful force that's going to force them to engage with reality. But from an external force, that's not the same as an internal engagement from inside. Mm-hmm. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Like the order of magnitude of power internal engagement is versus external. Because to be able to do that, to be motivated to say you do your day job and then I'm all about the side hustle. I love the side hustles. All about it. You got to be self-engaged enough internally 
to think, one, you're worth it. Two, it's worth the effort and energy to do so. And three, you're willing to sacrifice a lot of other things to do that instead. Mm-hmm. Like instead of, for example, when I was um, at Piper Cooper, I was, wor- you know, I was working plus going to school. I would work and go to school. Like that's the that deal. That's what would happen here. Uh, it was fun. It was, I, was working with art, I was an assistant art director. It was fun. I had no complaints about it, but that's my point. It's like instead of going out and partying on the weekends or right. spending time with my friends, I would be in school and working and right. studying and all that. So it's really, uh, in that sense, you're right. When you said before about you need to invest in yourself and believe in yourself, that's in that context, absolutely true. That's totally the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I worry students are a little too forward, are a little too externally motivated and engaged, mm-hmm. not internally. Right. And I think it makes a big difference of their long-term success. I can agree with that. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So as we're, 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 you know, at the end, basically, I have one last thing. What, if anything, are you looking to change, improve, or continue to do? Change. Well, I mean, Type Thursday is going through a big organizational shift in terms of just leadership development mm-hmm. and uh, organization. But I think it's, it's for totally the best. And I think it's a smart move that's going to help all the chapters do well and get us, get us to the next level where we can get to our next target is 20 chapters mm-hmm. instead of eight. So we're going to go for our, almost a doubling. Uh, so we, but we have to do very serious structural changes to do that. This is me being manager move. Right. This is like the typical management questions like you deal you deal with systems and structures and databases right. all the fun stuff yeah the fun stuff you know but it's important for it's for the larger purpose uh so there's that change keep doing just keep riding that train of of those honoring those principles seeking to understand and caring about people and really believing that people have value that you, you don't have all the answers and actually all you the real requirement is for you to create the space for others to come together. Mm-hmm. That's staying the same. That's never going to change. I don't want that ever to change. What was the last one? Oh, I mean, it was either or, but, you oh. know, looking to change, improve, or continue to do. Oh, looking to improve. Okay, that. Well, that's, that was an improvement. That was an improvement one. Then keep, I mean, I've been just like deep diving in philosophy and statistical analysis. And I'm in all, I'm in all these crazy directions, you know, because I just have this capacity to want to learn and grow. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really beautiful thing. I want right. to keep doing that. That's true. And I see that from just your ability to like understand what you wanted to do, your passion at a young age, figuring out what you, how you wanted to be in this creative world and see, you know, one of the things, right? Like to, to make it easy for people to say yes. Yeah. Right. That, that way of thinking and that mode to make sure that you can put people together and allow them the easiest way to kind of either commune, communicate, enjoy gather um understand right is is all the stuff that you've been doing have all been gravitating towards that right i'll say one note on that point so people ask like what's the goal for type thursday people think oh it's gonna happen next like five like five years i'm like five years you think it's so small i want generational change that's what i want i really believe what type thursday is going to do in about a generation will cause, I don't, the people I don't even know what's going to do. It's going to cause a revolution. It will have some massive implications in the design community in some way. I don't know what that is, to be quite frank, but the very fact that all great changes happen with communities coming together, mm-hmm. the salons, for example, in the alignment age, which led, you know, John Locke, the basic, which developed the Constitution of the United States, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's really the starting point of all great change was communities coming together 
to come to understanding and ground what is the common good everyone's aiming towards together. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do see Type Thursday, if it can continue itself and succeed and thrive more, we're gonna, I really believe we're gonna achieve that something down the road. Yeah. And it's not by our own, not by, ironically, not our own power, by, by, the, by the groups that come together and what they do. Yeah, the like-minded individuality of everybody coming together for a common goal. Yes. You know? Um, I definitely see that moving. I definitely see that as something that continues to thrive in what you're doing, what you've been doing, and what you're trying to continue to do yeah. in the future. Where can they find more about Thomas Jockin or Type Thursdays? Well, Type Thursday is typethursday.org. Nice and easy. You can find information about where our chapters are, how to start a chapter. We're always looking for new teams to start new chapters. We always have video content for you to check out as well. Online. Okay. Uh, myself is thomasjockin.com. Very easy. You can find my uh, lecture series on philosophical topics. I do a series called Fontribute, which I review typefaces. So you can always check that out and get more type stuff. Uh, and also my typefaces that are available on retail. They're av- also, by the way, on that sense, you can find my fonts on uh, most of the distributors. They're, we're on, I'm on, uh, on Adobe fonts. So you can find me through the Creative Sweet. Cloud. Uh, let alone the my the monotype monolith of the MySpace, the my fonts, whatever MySpace, my fonts, <laughs> same generations. Yeah, time. my something. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, and and Lexan, you can find Lexan.org as well as my. I have a GitHub, basically Lexan dot uh, GitHub. Basically, I'll send you the links. So yeah, yeah, share. I'll put all the links in the in the in the show notes. But just want to you know. I'll allow you to have a shout out to whatever appreciate, you want to talk very much about. Appreciate it. Of course, of course. Once again, Thomas, this was a great conversation. Thank you for coming to Brooklyn. I know Type Thursdays is happening tonight, tonight. right? <laughs> this was such a great conversation and I really enjoyed digging deeper into all of these things and really the principles of what you feel um, are design, but type and just kind of what these universal things are yeah. that we as designers and creatives kind of need to like own up to. So Thomas, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciated this conversation. George, I really enjoyed the conversation too. Thank Uh, you for having me so much. Definitely, definitely. This has been Works in Process. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Thomas. If you want to know more about Type Thursdays or his Lexan series with Google, check out the links in our show notes at WIP dot show slash 12 there you can find his answers to the icebreaker questions and the people he mentioned during the conversation also if you really like the episode give us a five-star rating on apple podcast you can find the works and process podcast on all podcast platforms such as apple google spotify amongst others please follow us on instagram at works underscore in process thanks again and until next time Follow your gut and trust in the process.